For the rest, you open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is on page 177 in the Pew Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. And just a reminder, Christmas Eve services, this Christmas Eve, uh, 3.30, 5.30, 7.30, uh, identical services. Uh, we'd love for you to come. Uh, we also have these um, little invitation cards. If, if you have some people you'd like to invite to Christmas Eve services, we have a whole stack of these. You could pick one up or two, three, four, and, and hand them out this week if you'd like to invite someone uh, to church here on Christmas Eve. So uh, you can, I think those will be available in the back. This morning we come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 in our continuing study of the book of Deuteronomy. And let me just read this passage for you. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty, and we have heard His voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live, even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and We will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you will possess. Well, I got an early Christmas present a couple weeks ago. Uh, In the mail, I got a free copy of TurboTax. So, (laughs) ho, 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 Merry Christmas. (laughs) Nothing puts you in the holiday cheer like thinking about taxes, right? Actually, I have to be honest, I'm really thankful for TurboTax because for some reason, whatever reason, taxes are just one of those things that give me anxiety uh, and, and I get stressed out because, at least to me, the tax code is so complex. There are so many forms and subforms and, you know, e- exemptions and deductions and, you know, carryover from last year. And I don't know, I, I just have this fear that I'm going to mess it up. And then it's going to cost me a lot of money. You know, I'm going to put the wrong number in the wrong box and forget to carry something to something else. And then two years later, some, I'm going to get some notice for thousands of dollars and I'm going to have to like sell my dog on eBay to pay for the taxes. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, I spin off like that when it comes to, for whatever in the IRS. So I'm really thankful that I have TurboTax or, or whatever. This is not a commercial for TurboTax, but um, th- that I have something to kind of go between me and, and the IRS so that I can understand it and I can meet what they want and they can get what they want from me. 
Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of people probably feel that way, whether it's a software program or probably just be smarter to have a paid tax preparer. Or, or maybe you have an uncle who's, like, really good with numbers, and that's the person who does it for you. Uh, or to put it in theological terms, I really need a mediator. I need someone to go between me and the other party to connect us. Uh, a mediator it comes from the Latin word that means middle. I need someone in the middle between me and the other thing. And, you know, when you think about modern life today, modern life is so complex here in our world there are so many things in our world that we interface with that are actually to such a state of complexity that unless you're an expert, you can't understand it. We need mediators between us and those things. You know, if you're going to do anything legally these days, you have to get a lawyer. I mean, it's just, and you've got to get the right kind of lawyer who knows the right kind of law that you're dealing with because the law code is, is crazily complex. And so you need experts who can mediate between you and the law. You know, or, or another sort of complexity of modern life, a lot of us have relational issues and sort of um, falling outs with our personal computers. You know, they're just, uh, it's like i got to have someone who speaks PC because, you know, my computer, it, it, it doesn't talk to me anymore. You know, we're not communicating, and I, I don't understand, you know, what's wrong. It won't share with me. And, and so, so you've got to take your apple to the genius bar where there's some mediators who can sort of mediate between you and your computer and help, you know, bridge that gap. Or, or another one I was just thinking about in the modern world, sort of one of the, the staples of modern life is, is therapists. It's like everybody, you know, has either been in therapy, is in therapy, or is going to be in therapy, um, or you know someone really close to you who has been. And, and I think, it, you know, it's just interesting that the part, one of the characteristics of, of modernity is that and you think it would it sort of simplify things, but it actually kind of fragments life. And we find that we are fragmented, that being a modern person is a very fragmented kind of experience. And so it's like I need a mediator to help me talk to me. You know? Yeah, that, that's it. It's sort of like I, I can't, you know, life is so fragmented. I'm so fragmented. I can't figure it out. I need you to help me figure me out, let, let alone, you know, to figure out relationships with others. And so that's just part of the modern world in which we live. But where do I go, where do I look, to whom will I turn to serve as a mediator between me and my Creator? Who, who is the person who can stand in the middle between me and my Maker and help bridge that, that gap that seems to be there? You know, when you look at uh, people in America... By and large, people in America believe in God in some generic sense. You know, you look at all the Gallup polls, and they do these polls on spirituality in America every year. Gallup does and some other, Barnum does. And by and large, Americans say they believe in God. The actual number of truly sort of self-professing atheists is a very small percentage of our population. People believe, you know, generically at least, in some kind of deity. It's just that I don't think a lot of people, at least my experiences, don't necessarily feel connected to that God. It's sort of like, yeah, there's a God... You know, I'm sure I believe that. I'm not an atheist. But in terms of my daily life, what I do, how I live, how I spend my money, who I hang with, what I do with my time, how I approach my work, how I relate to parenting or whatever it is, or singleness, whatever the situation is, I don't really draw upon God in any sense. And so I think that functionally speaking, a lot of people today I've kind of described as deists. I don't know if you're familiar with deism from the you know, 19th, uh, 18th, 19th century, deism was this idea that 
that God made the universe. He put the laws of nature in place. And then he sort of built the watch, wound it up, and then he took his hands off it. And, and nature runs by its laws. But God really doesn't intervene in the world today, even though there's a God. And even though today perhaps people wouldn't be theologically, self-consciously deists, I think that's how a lot of people function. It's like, yeah, there's a God, but, you know, realistically, it's kind of up to me and my common sense and hard work to, to do what I can. Uh, and for a lot of us, it's even more pronounced than that, because it's like, if there is a God, you know, not only am I just kind of distant from him, but I don't think he'd, he'd want to talk to me. <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm actually pretty irreligious. I am actually have, have some things in my past that I'm ashamed of. And, uh, you know, it's the whole, I, if you knew that it was me in church today, you'd be amazed the ceiling didn't fall in kind of thing. Because uh, God, God certainly would have a problem with me. And so maybe I'm kind of glad that God's way over there and I'm here. But I need a mediator. Who could mediate between me and God, even if God did want to connect with me? Well, this morning in Deuteronomy 5, we see Israel. Uh, they are... Moses is talking to Israel in Deuteronomy 5. That's who's narrating this. Moses is reminding the Israelites about an event 40 years prior in their history where God gave them the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you know that story, but you know God came down on Mount Sinai in this fiery cloud. He gave them the Ten Commandments. Last Sunday, if you were here, you know we studied the Ten Commandments. We kind of went through them and looked at them as a, a whole literary unit. But this Sunday, what I want to look at in verses 22 to 33 is Israel's reaction to seeing God in his power giving the Ten Commandments. So, so this is kind of the, sort of the second half. God comes down, speaks the Ten Commandments, and Israel reacts. And what's interesting about their reaction is, basically to sum it up, to kind of tell you, the, you know, where this is going in the very beginning, they basically say to God, we need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and you because this is it's too overwhelming for us. So if you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, Moses reminds them, these are the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Lord proclaimed to you. And how did he do it? In a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. So when God revealed himself to give Israel its law, he manifested himself in this kind of cataclysmic, catastrophic holocaust. He, he was this burning presence up on the mountain. It was like a volcano or something as, as God's powerful presence was revealed there. And it was terrifying. That's the main thing you see here. That's what I get out of verses 23 to you know, 29 or 27 is pretty much the Israelites were terrified. You know, so verse 23, when you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord your God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we've heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a man can live, even if God speaks with him. But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? I was like, look, Moses, we're terrified. Something amazing has happened. God talked to us and we didn't die. We got lucky. <laughs> we don't want to press our luck, Moses. <laughs> okay, that was great. Amazing little anomaly, but let's not do this anymore. We, you know, we lived, but if it keeps going on, we don't think we're going to continue to live. 
We, we, we feel that somehow we've escaped death. And, and Moses, we're terrified of this. We're, we're afraid for our lives. We're afraid from the fire that it's going to consume us. And then look at this. this. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, this little part of the sentence in verse 25 fascinated me. He says, this great fire will consume us, verse 25. And think of this. We will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. It's like we're going to die from God's voice. Like God's power and His glory are so great, He's so majestic, that it's, it's as if His voice could kill you. You know, if we hear His voice anymore, we shall perish. That's how great and awesome He is, let alone the fire and all the darkness and smoke. Just God's voice alone threatens our existence. I thought about, um, you know, every, every summer here in New England, there's at least one storm that rolls through, one lightning storm that is a real, you know, intense one, one of those supercells or whatever will come by your house and you'll be in the kitchen or in your house or at work and, you know, the lightning will sound like it's hitting your front porch, you, you know, where it's so loud that it seems like the flash and the sound are, are simultaneous. It's so close. And, and when those things hit, you know, even though you got the windows shut and all that, and you're like, I'm wearing rubber sole shoes, I know I'm grounded here in my own house, it's, it's still terrifying. You know, you, you feel that sort of, like, well, I could have got killed by just the sound of that lightning reverberating through the house. It, it makes you, it, it raises that kind of visceral fear at times, at the power of the, the thunder and the lightning. And so maybe that's what it was like, I don't know, but God was speaking, and the people were like, the fire's going to kill us. Just God's voice is going to kill us. We can't take this anymore. We need someone to stand between us and God. And if you look at it, I think it was not just that they were afraid for their physical lives, although they certainly were. But as you look at this text, I get the sense that there's something even deeper they're afraid of. It's not just that they were afraid of dying because there was fire and it was sort of scary pyrotechnics, and they're like, ah, you know. It wasn't just like they were at the bottom of a volcano looking up saying, we need to run away. But it was more, it was, it was fear of God himself in his character, in his majesty. Not just dying because of fire, but God himself was terrifying them. You know, look back at verse 24. The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. And there's this idea of the glory of God, it's kind of typical biblical language. The glory. What is the glory of God? I mean, what is that? I mean, what does that mean? And and what it appears to be is is sort of the give it for lack of a better term, the shining forth of his of his majesty and his character and his worth. So God is a great king. He's the majestic God. He's God is the greatest thing in the universe. What's the best thing in all the universe? It's God Himself. He is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest good. And, and his, his glory is kind of His shining forth and the manifestation of all that He is, all His holiness and all of His character. I think of like the sun you know, burning in all of its heat and it sends out light and heat into our galaxy. And so in the same kind of way, God is, His glory is, is that shining forth and going out of His holiness, of, of all that makes Him good and glorious. And so what Israel was seeing was not just a scary display of power. They were experiencing God's character sort of being revealed to them. And, and whenever God's holy character shines forth, 
it always makes sinful people very uncomfortable. You know? Boy, it'd be really cool to see God. You think so? Because that's not the reaction you see in Scripture. You know, the glory of the Lord shone around the angels, around the shepherds, and they were what? Terrified. They were scared to death. And this is what happens when the glory of God shines on sinful people. When, when, our, when the, the dry stubble of our sinfulness comes into close proximity with the solar heat of God's holiness, it is a terrifying experience. Because Not just because I'm going to die, but because I'm under the judgment of a holy God. And I realize how precarious my situation is. You know, again, looking back at the text, why is it that when God's glory shows up, it comes with fire and darkness? What, where, in the rest of the Bible, what do fire and darkness always tend to symbolize? Judgment. God judges with fire and darkness. You know, the, the final judgment is the lake of fire where the smoke goes up forever and ever. These are, these are images in the Bible. So here's God coming in all of His holy glory among a sinful people, and these harbingers of judgment are billowing out of his presence. And so I think that's why the people are afraid of God himself. You know, God is, is himself is what's threatening us. His judgment is imminent. His holiness is coming to bear. And so we need a mediator. We need someone between us and God. How can we relate as sinful people to a holy God? Uh, you see this all over the Bible. You know, when Adam and Eve, they lived in the Garden of Eden, harmony with God. Then they sinned. And then God came into the garden after their sin. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ran and hid. Because now the dry stubble of sin was coming into the presence of the the solar heat of God's holiness. And it was now a terrifying moment of judgment for Adam and Eve. And so they ran. Uh, Or or think of Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter chapter 6. When I think about the holiness of God, my mind just goes straight to Isaiah chapter 6. It's the, the story of when the prophet Isaiah... God, his commissioning from God to be a prophet. He had this vision. He saw God seated on a throne in his glory. And there were angels flying around God. Do you remember what they said? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And and as Isaiah stood there, suddenly confronted with the the supreme holiness of God, what, what did he say? He said, woe to me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Again, I'm a sinful man who's seen God. I must be about to die because God is so great and holy, and I'm a sinful man, and so I come to realize it. See, here's the deal. I'm a good person, and you're a good person, and she's a good person, until... God comes into the picture. And suddenly all my little you're a good person, I'm a good person stuff just evaporates. And I realize, yeah, I can compare myself to you, and I probably do pretty good, actually. But, uh, (laughs) right? Isn't that how we think? But when I compare myself to God, and I realize God is the greatest good, and I have, I've pretty much never really loved Him. I've never loved that which is of most value and worth in the universe. Like, in my core, I'm profoundly bent and sinful. Just my life orientation is away from God. It's wrong. And I realize I'm not okay. I'm not good. You know, you're spiritual and I'm spiritual. 
And she's spiritual. We're all spiritual. Isn't it great? We all have our spiritualities. You know, until the real God shows up. And all of our kind of phony, baloney, quasi-New Age, touchy-feely spirituality just kind of poof. And I realized, you know, I was just making that stuff up in my own head. This is the real God. Oh, dear. I wasn't prepared for this at all. You know, my, my yoga's not working. I mean, like, God is here. God is here. And I've, I'm, I'm, I'm undone and I'm naked in my sin before Him. You know, you're a good Christian and I'm a good Christian. And she's a good Christian. And we all have a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's great. And I take my personal relationship with Jesus out on Sundays and I sing about it. I feel good. And I put it back. You know, it's great. Until, like in Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle sees the risen Jesus shining like the sun, his eyes like blazing fire, his feet like burnished bronze. And, and what does John do? Oh, Jesus, good to see you again. It's been 30 years. No, he just falls at his feet as a dead man in the presence of the holiness of the risen Christ. And so Israel has this experience of like seeing God in His majesty. And what do they do? What do they cry out for? They say, we need a mediator. There's a big problem here with us and a holy God. We need a go-between. And so they say, we have a volunteer, Moses. Please go talk to God for us. Verse 27, go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. All right, Moses, you talk to him. We're going to stand over here. And whatever he says, let us know and we'll do it. We just don't want to talk to him anymore, okay? We're done. We cannot take it. We need a mediator. And look at the Lord's response, verses 28 and 29. God responds to Israel's request for a mediator. And he has kind of a a, a two-part response, and each of the parts are a little bit different. The first part's positive, verse 28. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard this people, what they've said to you, everything they said was good. So Everything Israel just said right now was good. The part where they were afraid of my holiness, good. And the part where they wanted a mediator, I'm glad they've come to the conclusion that they need a mediator. And the whole thing about them wanting to obey whatever you tell them, good. This is good. You know, Israel is having a moment of spiritual clarity. They're having an epiphany where suddenly they're breaking through all the other stuff and seeing who God is and who they are before Him and how they need a Savior and an intermediary between them and God. So God's like, this is good. We're having a moment here. Everything they just said is right on the money. But then verse 29, He says, but oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and keep all My commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Oh, but you know what, Moses? This isn't who they really are. I can see through them. Yes, they, in this one little moment, they seem to get it. But Moses, I know who they are. And their hearts aren't there. Their hearts aren't inclined toward me. This is not a people who really, truly fear me and love me and know me. You know, it's, it's possible for us as human beings 
to have brief moments of spiritual clarity that are not lasting and are not life-changing. People can shed a tear in a touching service. People can be touched by things genuinely. And yet it's not a a heart change. It's, It's something that maybe affects us emotionally or mentally at some level. But it doesn't change our core nature. And we're still the same person on the inside. And so that's how it was with the Israelites. You know, Jesus talked about this. Jesus told the parable of the seeds, which we read it in Mark, I think, two Sundays ago, one Sunday ago. But, you know, the parable of the sower, the guy, Jesus says it's like going around spreading seed. Some of the seed falls on the rocky soil. And they said, that's like people who hear about me and just kind of go, eh, whatever, I'm not interested. We've all met that. They said, but then there's some seed that falls on shallow soil, really thin soil. And, and the seed springs up right away and you go, wow, God's doing something. But then it's shallow soil and the sun comes out, the heat comes and the plant withers because it has no roots. And so I think Israel here was sort of having a shallow soil moment. There was this moment where they were saying, good, well, we need a mediator. All right, that's all great. But Moses, God says to Moses, oh, I just wish their hearts really were different because I know They're going to wither very soon. And sure enough, that's what happened. Verse 30. Go tell them to return to their tents. You stay here with me. I'll give you the commandments, decrees, and laws that you're going to teach them. So you be the mediator, Moses. Israel, you go back to your tents. Moses, come here with me. And uh, it's not here in this particular text, but do you know the rest of the story? Moses goes up on the mountain for how long? Forty days. Forty days. A little over a month. He's up there hanging out with God in this amazing meeting where God's giving him all these laws. And he gives him the two tablets and he comes down the mountain. And there's Israel ready to receive the Ten Commandments, right? No, they've already given up on God and they're already worshiping another God. They've made a golden calf. They couldn't even wait 40 days for Moses to come down the mountain. Oh, he's gone. This is too much. It's too stressful. And the plant withers and they're back to idolatry. And so what did Moses do? He throws those Ten Commandments down and smashes them in that symbol of this is what you've done. You've smashed the covenant with God. You've broken the covenant, Israel. And, and he's like, God, you know, what are we going to do with these people? And so even though Moses was the mediator, all he could really do was bring laws to Israel. He couldn't change their hearts. But we thank God at Christmas, we celebrate at Christmas, we we rejoice at Christmas, because at Christmas God has sent a gift into the world that we could never replicate on our own. There's nothing we could do in our human efforts to create this gift from the ground up. God has given us the gift of a mediator from heaven named Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came at Christmas to be the mediator that we really need, that Moses sort of prefigured but himself could not fulfill jesus is that mediator and i'd like you to just turn just really quick i just want to show you this really quickly in hebrews chapter 8 hebrews chapter 8 it's on page uh, 1189 in the pew bible we studied hebrews a couple years ago hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Moses brought the old covenant, which is broken, and so Jesus has brought the new covenant. And it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, page 1189, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that is to the Old Testament priests, 
as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. So Moses mediated a covenant between God and Israel, but it wasn't a good enough covenant, and he wasn't a good enough mediator. Jesus, however, brings a new covenant, and he is the superior mediator that we need. Let me just really quickly tick off very quick four ways in which Jesus is a superior mediator to Moses. Way number one, Jesus is a superior mediator because he comes down from heaven. You know, Moses was sent up the mountain from Israel. Like, Moses, you go up and talk to God. Jesus came down from heaven from God. He was God's unique son. Uh, Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God has sent the superior mediator. It says in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That was the old. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Father has spoken through the Son. And who is the Son? Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So again, you know, he, he is the glory itself, you might say, shining forth. Uh, when Moses went into the tent to meet with God, remember this story? It's kind of a cool story. Moses would come out after meeting with God, and, and how was Moses different? Remember his face was shining because he'd been in the presence of God. It was sort of like God's glory kind of rubbed off on him and stuck to him. And so Moses had to wear a veil on his face because he was scaring the Israelites with a shiny face. And so... Uh, I mean, he freaked them out. It was, again, God's glory, God's holiness was shining, and they were afraid. So they needed something in between. But Jesus doesn't just reflect God's radiance in his glory. Jesus is, is the radiance of God's glory. He is God himself. And he's the exact representation of his being. How can a man see God and live? Well, With Jesus, we can. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father. That's what Jesus said. He goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know who God is? Just look at me. Talk to me. And you've you've met God. And so Jesus claimed and the, the, the apostles taught that he was not just a prophet or an inspired religious leader, but that he was the God-man sent from heaven. So he's, the, he's better than Moses because, number one, he was sent from heaven. Number two, he's a superior mediator because, unlike Moses, Jesus can actually change our hearts. He, can actu- he doesn't just give me laws and things to do, do's and don'ts. He can actually change who I am. Look at Hebrews again, chapter 8. Look at verse 10. Speaking of this new covenant that Jesus would make. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on a stone tablet? No. In their minds. And I will write them on their hearts. One of the characteristics of the new covenant in Jesus is that God just doesn't give us a bunch of rules on stone tablets. He actually changes our hearts. And so to be a member of the new covenant is to have your your life changed. Jesus described this as being born again. You know, you, you have to be born again, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God, to be a part of this new covenant. That, that only Christ can actually change my heart and my life. 
You know, I know sometimes, uh, again, people struggle with believing in God. It's like, you know, what proof is there that there's a God? How can you prove it? And, you know, one of the evidences that's really convincing to me, I mean, it's not 100% proof because actually there is no 100% proof for anything, really. <laughs> You've got to take a step of faith with anything you believe, even atheism. But, uh, but, you know, with Christianity, there's a step of faith. But there is evidence. And one of the evidences for the existence of God is that people's lives are changed. You know? I, I mean, I could bring you dozens and scores and hundreds of people in this church who could just form a big, long conga line and come up here with a microphone and tell you, my life was changed. Not just, you know, I, I had a little self-improvement, but like something fundamental in my soul has changed. I have a new heart. I'm a different person. And person after person has had this experience of being changed, of having a new heart and a new mind as, as God puts his covenant within us. And so Jesus is superior mediator because he can actually change me. You know? I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where your heart is at today. Maybe you're like, man, my heart is so hard and heavy and hostile to God, and I have so much unbelief and so many issues. And I just want to let you know, like Jesus can actually change your inner heart and nature. Not your physical heart, but, you know, your, your soul. He can give you a new heart. You could ask him for it, and he can answer that prayer. Number three, Jesus is superior mediator, not only because he came from heaven, not only because he can change our hearts. Just quickly here, number three, because he can actually forgive my sins. He can actually bridge the gap in the distance between me and God, this moral distance. The dry kindling of my sin coming into the holy presence of God is no longer flammable. Maybe this is overpressing the metaphor, but because it's been sort of soaked in the blood of Christ. And so it's no longer flammable to God's judgment. It's no longer liable to judgment. You know, look again at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Another aspect of the new covenant that Jesus mediates. He says, God says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Through the blood of Jesus, my sins and everything that I've done that makes me have good cause to fear God's judgment has been washed away. And so you can be forgiven of, of whatever if you turn to Christ the mediator. Um, you know, again, just to think about this reconciliation imagery, this mediator, oftentimes mediators stand between two parties who are at odds with each other and tries to bring hostile peoples together. And so one way he does that is with us. He changes our hearts from hostility and fear of God to, to really trusting and loving God. He can change me in the relationship. But the other thing Jesus did on the cross is that he turned God toward me positively. Because, you know, we often don't think of that aspect of the equation. But God had to be reconciled to us. Because he was a holy judge and he, my sins deserve to be punished. But by Jesus dying on the cross in my place... God's holy justice was satisfied in Christ so that God could be reconciled to me as well and extend love and mercy to me. And so in Christ, both my heart is changed and God's heart is changed because Jesus died for my sins. And that leads to the fourth and final way that Jesus is superior mediator. And, and the fourth one's kind of like you add up the previous three and it equals the fourth one. And the fourth one is this, that Jesus as mediator actually beckons us to draw close to God. You know, Israel still had to go away. It was like, Moses, you know, you guys go to your tents. I'm going to go mediate. But with Jesus, it's, I've done it. You guys come close. 
Come closer to God. Draw nearer to God. Don't stand so far away from God. Why are you at a distance? Christ has forgiven your sins. Christ has, has come for you. So why are you staying away from God? Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10:19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, we can go into God's holy presence confidently. Think about that. The holy presence of God that terrifies, I can now confidently walk into it. Why? By a new... Uh, uh, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. The old way through Moses didn't work, so now there's a new living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here we go, verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Yeah, draw near to God. And so this is the, the whole thing. We're saved from our sins so that we can really draw near to him and Know Him and treasure Him and glorify Him. God's glory is, is the ultimate end of all that He's doing so that we can glorify and enjoy Him forever as our God. And so this Christmas, as you do all your Christmas traditions and your shopping and all that stuff, can I just encourage you to celebrate the real meaning of Christmas and lay hold of the Mediator and draw close to God? You know, we, we often say Jesus is the reason for the season. It's true. But, but I think we need even to go further than that. That's a little bit vague. Jesus is the reason for the season because he has come to be the mediator between us and God so that I can actually draw close to God and know him. And so this Christmas, celebrate Christmas by drawing close to God. You know, maybe you've been a Christian like me. I've been a Christian for a while now. Maybe you've been a, a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And one of the challenges of being a Christian for many years is just that the Christian life can become kind of routine. And it can become predictable and it can become very comfortable. And I have sort of every, all my beliefs in their place and all my habits in their place. And, and God is beckoning us to draw closer. Even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're not there yet. Come closer. Come closer. God has more for you. You haven't, you haven't drained you know, the well yet. It, it's still full. God has more for you. God has more to teach you. God has more for you to do. You know, he's, that's the great thing, is once we're forgiven in God's presence, then God gives us a job. After John the Apostle saw the vision of the risen Christ, Jesus says, get up, I've got a job for you. You're going to write down Revelation. When Isaiah the prophet said, woe is me, God forgave him and then said, Isaiah, I've got a job for you. So God has things for you to do. You're not done. Draw closer to God. There's more for you, even if you've been a Christian for 50 years. Maybe this Christmas season uh, is a time of, of pain for you, as it is for a lot of people. I mean, we all put on the kind of you know, Christmas cheer, happy holidays button and all that stuff. But inside, a lot of us are hurting. This is a very lonely time for a lot of people. This is a time for increased depression for a lot of people. It's a time of grief. It's a time where we feel hopeless when we think we're supposed to feel merry, but we're not. And uh, what do you do with that? Well, you start by drawing close to God. You need to draw close to Him again. You need to press in closer. I, I don't know what all the solutions are, but I know that God is real, and you can draw close to Him and that He'll lead you. And maybe you've never in your life really put your faith in Christ and really become a Christian and you say, I'm so far, there's so much issues, there's so much baggage. If you only knew, Pastor, 
hey, you know what? By this point, I've, I've heard it all. And Jesus can forgive it all. So just come to Christ through the mediator. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You this morning for You, that You are the mediator between God and man. You alone died for our sins to cleanse us. You alone rose again. You alone can change our hearts. And so, Jesus, we cry out to You that You would cause us to draw near. I pray, Lord, for brothers and sisters here who know You and love You, Jesus, starting even myself, that we would draw closer that we would see that there's more for us than we've received, that you have more blessings and more grace. Lord, deepen our walk with you. We, we pray, God, protect us from becoming complacent, comfortable Christians who have all of our theological and spiritual things packed nicely into boxes. God, we pray that we would continue to press into a living, breathing, missional relationship with you where you send us out to do your will. God, I pray for those who are hurting today for those for whom Christmas is a painful time, those who uh, seem to feel like they're always choking back the tears all day. God, I just pray that you would give them your peace and your comfort and that they would draw near to you, the God of all comfort and God of all peace. And God, I just pray for anyone here who wonders if you're even real, that they would just draw close. They would take a step closer. They would test and find out and, and lay down the, uh, the, the, the things they have in boxes, Lord. They've put you in a box. It's called the box of God isn't real, God doesn't matter. God, I just pray they'd, they'd get rid of those, those phony boxes and just take a step closer and draw near and see that you are truly the Savior. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.